0: Following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Our reading today from the Gospel is uh, Luke 20, the Resurrection and Marriage. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said. Moses wrote... For us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, quote, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive.
1: Thank you, Michael. We're going to get to that very bizarre reading. Um, actually, the truth is I'm going to go a little quicker than expected today because um, we we have I love that we spend so much time in community prayer. And uh, by the way, if you didn't get a chance to share your prayer request, you can always email prayer at artisanchurch.com. There are moments when I'm like, I should stand up and get this prayer over with so I can say what I need to say. (laughs) And then thankfully, usually um, something, possibly the Holy Spirit, uh, encourages me not to do that. So, but before I even get to the gospel reading, I do want to begin with a quick reflection on what happened in this room last week, um, which to me had the feeling of one of those weeks where something just kind of broke in a good way, like broke open in a good way. And if you weren't here, I'm going to tell you briefly about it. Uh, we called it a clean slate Sunday. And the premise was that we had no plan for our liturgy. And if you were a first timer here, I see some people who were first timers here last week who decided to come back today, which is like um, shows that God's still doing miracles. Um, but we had no plan whatsoever, and so we decided to, on the fly, in the service, in the room, not only what we would do: are we going to read scripture? Are we going to sing songs? Are we going to say prayers? Uh, but also how we would do it, and who would be involved, and in what way. Um, and in some ways, it was total chaos, typical artisan nonsense. But in other ways, I think we found, you know, our our path pretty quickly back to something that that was mostly a familiar rhythm but also with some important tweaks and additions, things that I think we probably will carry forward with us as we process the experience that we had together. And perhaps most important of all, we had a whole pile of new people involved in making our service of worship happen. And I want to say to every single one of you who was involved in making the service happen last week in any way, that your contribution to that experience was a gift to the entire community. Um, Some of you told me how liberating it was or how empowering or how healing it was for you to be up front at church with everybody in the room having full knowledge of who you are. What a gift, not just for you, in fact, mostly for the rest of us. Some of you revealed to, uh, to me and to us, and maybe to yourself, uh, a, n- a real talent, a deep heart, a-, a powerful capacity for leading us in worship in a particular way. What a gift. So thank you uh, to everybody who was involved. And if you weren't here and you're thinking, man, I wish I could go back in time, uh, this is literally the last one good thing that exists about Facebook. <laughs> the archive of last week's service is still there and you do not need to have an account with that terrible service in order to view it (laughs) you can just go to facebook.com slash artisan slash videos i think and you'll find um, all of our services that we've streamed actually i would really encourage you especially if you're a person who is invested in what happens here at artisan to go back and, and take the time to watch that service all the chaos and all the goodness it was really beautiful. Um, the other thing that happened was that we asked anyone who wanted to to fill out this brief little form, uh, checking off boxes about how you might like to be involved in in the work of the people and shaping the liturgy. And the response to that was awesome. I haven't gotten through all of the responses that we had yet. So if you submitted one of these papers and didn't hear back from me, sit tight. You will hear back from me or from somebody soon. And if you didn't fill out one of these, these are still on the welcome table. So you can um, you can do that and we'll be in touch with you. Um, But all of this was to set up the idea that liturgy, our um, acts of worship as a community, is the work of the people. That's the name of the series that we're involved in right now, The Work of the People. Making this whole thing happen, being the church in this particular way, is not only the task of trained um, experts or paid staff, but of the entire community of people who are gathered here to encounter God, embrace people, and engage culture in the way of Jesus. And uh, what a powerful example we saw of that last week. And I'd like to keep that momentum going uh, as we go through this series, which honestly is going to be more than just a series. It's going to be more like a thematic thread. If you've been around long enough, you know that sometimes we have thematic threads that last sometimes a whole year. I think work of the people is one of those things that God is calling our attention to right now. And uh, we're going to continue to think about it uh, for, I don't know how long. We'll call it a while. We're going to think about it for a while. And in the short term, I can tell you what we're going to do is use the lectionary texts to shape our services of worship together. So um, we found out last week that you can just Google the word lectionary and you'll get the results for the readings that are assigned to a given week. And I encourage you to do that even before Sunday. If you're looking to read the Bible but don't know where to start, this is a great place to start because chances are pretty good that you'll read something that we then engage with in the upcoming Sunday. So starting. If you go to the first result when you Google the word lectionary today, you'll see today's readings. But if you do it tomorrow, you'll see next Sunday's readings. And you can always kind of navigate from week to week as well. So I encourage you to do that. Um, and then our liturgy may end up being a little bit flexible as we have more voices involved in making it happen. Um, in fact, I'm going to ask somebody who has not planned to read today to read a brief passage in probably about five minutes or less. So uh, get yourself ready, whoever that is. Okay. <clears throat> Today's sermon is based on that gospel reading from Luke 20, and I've entitled it Ownership and Eternity. Um, How weird, by the way, was that that passage on a scale from God made the world to seven-headed dragon with ten horns coming out of a lake? (laughs) You're closer to the dragon, okay, all right. I think maybe you're right about that. Well, as my first ever Bible teacher in college told me, context is everything when you're interpreting scripture. So let's try to get a little bit of the context here. What on earth is going on with this hypothetical scenario that these people bring to Jesus about a woman who's widowed and then marries her widow's brother and then she's widowed again and married the next brother and then happened seven times. What on earth is happening there? Well, I will tell you, this is part of an ancient uh, Jewish law called Leveret marriage. And um, let's take a look at what that actually is. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And here's where I'm asking someone who hasn't been planned to read to come forward and read this passage for
2: me. Um, I will get it for you in the Bible while you come up. Don't make me pull up my middle school principal. I will wait. I will wait. (laughs) Hi, thank you. (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay, you're going to read Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10. Okay, there
3: better right. not be any
2: creepy. There, there aren't any real weird names or anything. So,
3: Great. when brothers reside together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. My husband's brother, her husband's brother, shall go into her taking her in marriage and performing the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the firstborn whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the deceased brother, so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man has no desire to marry his brother's widow, then his brother's widow shall go up to the elders at the gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and speak to him. If he persists saying, I have no, zi- no desire to marry her, then his brother's wife shall go to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, fit in his face and declare this is what is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house throughout Israel his family shall be known as the house of him whose sandal was pulled off
1: please don't let that stop you from um reading scripture on the fly in the future by the way do you all feel better now knowing the context does it make total sense to you you feel a lot better about that Whew. Okay, what do we see, what principle do we see in play in this, in this law of ancient Israel that they come and ask Jesus a question that's related to? It's a word that starts with P and ends with
2: patriarchy. Okay? <laughs> and I will talk more about patriarchy briefly. That's not part of the thing. That's not what I'm going to cut out of the sermon, don't worry. But here's what's
1: interesting to me about this whole scenario in the gospel reading, right? Leverett marriage is not the main point of the question that is asked of Jesus. They're not really asking him about that law or that practice. Look at the very beginning of the gospel reading. If you still, if you opened it and still have it open, what it starts out by saying is some Sadducees, those who say
2: there is no resurrection came to him. Now, that's a clue about what their actual agenda was.
1: Now, you need to know that there were, just as there are now, there were various Jewish groups at the time who held slightly divergent views from one another about the finer points of religious doctrine, right? Um, Just as now you may know, there's Orthodox Jews uh, and um, Hasidic Jews and Reform Jews, Uh, At the same time, or in a similar way, in the time of Jesus, there were a handful of different Jewish uh, sects. This is the last time I'm going to say that word, S-E-C-T-S. We all know, most of us, about the Pharisees, right? The really legalistic ones. But the ironic thing is that in their day, they were considered by many other Jewish groups to be not legalistic enough. Um, But you may be less familiar with the Sadducees. That's the group that comes up to Jesus in this story. Um, they were an elite kind of group. They were based in Jerusalem and they denied the idea of the resurrection or what some scholars say is that they think it might've been that they, it's more, not that they denied that it was a thing at all, but that they sort of insisted, you can't prove that to me from scripture. It's an argument from silence. In other words, they might've said, which is kind of interesting to me as a person who's been exposed to my share of theological debates over the years. That's kind of the type of argument that some people make. Uh, in interpreting scripture even now today. And this whole thing, actually, is not all that different from Christianity in the present day, if you ask me. Uh, And I'll ask you um, a slightly rhetorical question. Uh, How hard would it be for us together in the next few minutes to come up with some examples of sharp disagreements between Christians from various groups? Right? Right? Not hard. The answer is not hard at all, right? Um, We could find Christians who agree about the main principles of Christian religion, but disagree about things related to, say, diet or baptism or sexuality or the end times, right? Tune in next week, by the way, uh, (coughs) for a a sermon that I hope will manage to say something about that. By the way, if you've ever been to any kind of Christian conference where there are speakers, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I have been to a lot of those as well, and they're, they're both wonderful and utterly miserable for various reasons. But you, if you've been to those conferences, and some of you have been to those conferences with me, and you know exactly how cynical I actually am as a consequence of that, but you've, you've gotten to the part, you've been there when they get to the part where there's the Q&A for the speaker. How many of you get to the Q&A with the speaker and you're like, oh, this is going to be great. Maybe just the uh, unrepentant cynics in the room. <laughs> Jesus, save me from my sins, but not from my cynicism. Um, I just made that up on the fly. You're welcome.
2: They come up to the microphone and they're like, uh, I actually have more of a comment. Right, <laughs> Or, at best, they, they ask a question,
1: but it's kind of a coded question. It's like they're really trying to make a point and impress everybody in the room with how smart they are and how much they know. And that's, I think, exactly what the Sadducees are doing in this moment. They're asking Jesus a question by the strict definition of the word question. But what they're really trying to do is get him on record about his views concerning resurrection from the dead. And the way they do that is they present this very specific, bizarre, hypothetical case study about which they don't actually care so that they can get him to give an answer to the question which would tip their, tip his hand about whether he believes in the resurrection or not. Now, do you think Jesus is going to play ball with this?
2: Jesus never plays ball with this. And he did kind of weigh in on the resurrection. He's like, yeah, it's in the Bible, great.
1: But mainly his answer indicated uh, that they were asking the wrong question. And in keeping with his tradition, I am also not going to talk about the resurrection from the dead today, other than to say basically what I think he said, which is, yeah, sure, it's in the Bible. Read the part about Moses, uh, etc." Because I think there's another topic here that's probably more pressing for us, and it starts with P and ends with atriarchy. And I want to talk about that ancient practice of lever marriage a little bit and what it says about patriarchy and what that might have to say for us. First of all, I am reminded of what um, the brilliant uh, Rachel Held Evans said patriarchy. Some of you might have read this. Um, she said that just because the Bible assumes patriarchy does not mean that it prescribes patriarchy or that God commands
2: or endorses patriarchy. Yeah. <clears throat> um, And Rachel Held Evans died far too soon. And I know that she's played an important part in the formation of
1: many of our faith. And we're grateful to God for her witness. Here's what I would say about this. Acknowledging that, yes, I am a man. It, it is quite easy for us in the 21st century to condemn the practice of patriarchy and this leveret marriage thing as utterly barbaric, right? Uh, Perhaps you even wish, as I kind of wish, that Jesus would have done like something on the spot and save us a lot of heartache, which is to stand up and say, that whole thing is barbaric, and as the son of God, I reverse it. (laughs) But that's not what Jesus did either. He doesn't do what the Sadducees want him to do, and he doesn't do what we want him to do. So what I think would be helpful for us in our understanding, and which I hope will get us closer to a salient point in this sermon based on this reading, is to imagine what was behind that practice of leveret marriage. Let's think for a moment together, um, those of us who know a little bit of the story of the Bible and the, and the history of the people of Israel as it's told in this religious text, let's think for a moment about the importance to the people of Israel of procreation and childbearing and of keeping a family name intact. The whole story with Israel starts with God making a promise to Abraham in his uh, dotage, in his old age, that he and his wife Sarah, who had never had children and were well past the age of childbearing, that they would not only have a child, but that they would become the parents
2: of a great nation, of a great family group, of a great tribe, of people. Look up at the stars, right? As many stars as you can see, that's how many people will descend from you.
1: And that was a hard pill for them to swallow in their age. But this part of the collective memory of the people of Israel that God made good on that promise and that they did produce an heir. And in fact, it's interesting to note that they produced not one heir, but more than one, uh, because part of what they tried to do was take matters into their own hands and, and involve... Uh, A different mother in the equation, right? Hagar. And the child that Hagar bore was named Ishmael. We understand him to be the father of the Islamic peoples. And the text says that God honored God's promise to those people and to that family line as well. You have the story of Jacob and Esau, who have this contentious relationship and and where there's a a bit of trickery involved in Uh, determining who would receive the blessing of being the continuation of the line of Abraham. You have the story of Solomon's sons, the grandsons of King David, who were at odds with each other and could not agree on who should succeed the throne in the kingdom of Israel and become the the, uh, descendant from King King David. You have the result of that, which was the division of the kingdom uh, of Israel, And then after that, the exile of the people of Israel, which led everyone to wonder, are we even going to continue as a people at all? Or will the name of the people of Abraham be blotted from the earth forever? So the question of whose child is whose is not primarily a question about the ownership of women, although we do see that barbaric
2: reality present in that law. But rather a question of the very survival of the people of God. So when one male dies before he's able to produce another male heir
1: and to continue his line, there's a solution for that. And it's all part of preserving the the familial history of the people of
2: God. At least that was the assumption of the people asking Jesus this question. And I say assumption because they breeze right past it.
1: Remember, they don't even care about any of that. They just want to get Jesus on record about what he
2: believes about the resurrection from the dead. And what does Jesus say in response to that question? He says, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage.
1: Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children
2: of God, being children of the resurrection. In other words, what I take Jesus to mean here is that you don't need to have children in order to make a name for yourself. You can take on the name of child of God, regardless of your marital state, regardless of whether you produce an heir. And this marriage and family business is
1: really not that important in the grand scheme of things, which is a really Shocking and dramatic thing to say in his culture. By the way, the Apostle Paul also was not a big fan of marriage. For all of the, t- for all of the words of Paul that are appropriated to say certain things about human sexuality, what, ev- what everybody seems to miss in those debates is that Paul also said, it's really better if you don't do it at all. <laughs> they don't say that part about it. Because in the Christian church, in the, in the modern era, we idolize marriage. And we idolize parenthood. I'm a person who is blessed to be both married and a parent. but I want you to know that if you are not, that does not change your value in the kingdom of God. It means nothing as regards your value in the kingdom of God. Whether or not you ever produce an heir, which is not language, thankfully, that we use anymore, except on those weird British TV
2: shows... Whether or not you become a parent. Whether or not you were produced out of the parentage that was healthy or not. You are a child of God. And so while I sometimes wish that Jesus would
1: say the thing that I would say in that situation, which is hang on there, Sadducee buddies. I'm going to blow your mind. You're not even ready for what I have to say about Leveret marriage. <laughs> what I, I wish that he would say what I would say. I'm usually ending up grateful that he says what he actually says.
2: And so what I would like to ask you to do, and I'm going to try to do it too, is to take a moment to reflect on where you came from. Who are your parents? Biological parents? Religious parents. Who produced you? How did you become the person you are? You
1: may have very fond feelings about that lineage, and you may have extremely painful
2: feelings about that lineage. It may be complicated and somewhere in between. How much of your identity, intentionally or not, is tied up in that lineage?
1: as the child of such and such a parent
2: or as the person who was led to Christ by such and such a leader who turned out to be such a problem. I want to tell you that you can choose instead to take your identity as a child of God
1: because in the age to come, nobody's going to marry, nobody's going to be given in marriage, patriarchy isn't even going to be a thing. It's not even going to be the way we talk about it. Whatever it is, the age to come, and spoiler alert, I don't have a real strong opinion or knowledge of
2: any special facts that I can share with you. But what we do know is that everybody is identified by Jesus as children of God because they're children of the resurrection, they're children of the new life that he offers us. Would you take just maybe 20 seconds and sit with this idea? Where did you come from? Where's your identity placed? And can you locate it somewhere else if you need to? Um, I have run on a little bit longer than I intended
1: to, and I do still want to invite you to take communion, but there are a few short words that I have to say about something else, which is, I think, fitting on a day when I, a Christian leader, spent a good deal of time talking about Judaism, uh, which is the really shocking rise of anti-Semitism that we have seen in recent days, Um, which really is an illustration of something that's been there all along. Um, when public figures, multiples of them in one week, come out and reveal themselves to be vaguely or explicitly anti-Semitic, it, it shines a light on the ugliness that's always there. And I think as Christian people, we, we really need to be careful that we don't just go, oh, Kanye's such an idiot. He's an anti-Semite. And instead, take a few minutes to be self-reflective about how our own beliefs and traditions have also perpetuated anti-Semitism. You've heard me say certain things about this occasionally. So whenever we're in the Gospel of John, um, John seems fond of using the phrase the Jews, which really kind of feels quite shocking to us. I don't think he means it in that shocking way, but it certainly has been used in that way to say that the Jews are the problem. Christianity has perpetuated this. Um, I do not recommend ever that anybody read extensively the writings of Martin Luther, um, but if you were to, you would find some goodness in there, and you'd find a whole lot of ugliness in there as well. Anti-Semitism in the church is very, 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 very common, and it's insidious and hard to identify. But even when, when a pastor starts preaching about how Jesus replaced this, awful system.
2: <laughs> and I've preached those words in, in different ways over the years. Um, that itself is
1: pretty dangerous if you're not careful with it, in saying those words or in hearing them and trying to apply them. And so as Christians, we ought to be uh, willing to put our, ourselves on the line a little bit to stand up for our Jewish siblings in the human race. Uh, To call out anti-Semitism, not just in the easy way, like the Kanye is an idiot kind of way, but in the more difficult ways, which might take place around our Thanksgiving table. um, Or in the break room at work.
2: Or even here in the sanctuary at Artisan Church, where we would never think to do something like that. Uh, And I think
1: one thing that you can do is, is... vote against candidates who are openly anti-Semitic or who play footsie with people who are, because it's the same thing. Um, By the way, early voting in Murrow County is happening. It is open until 5 p.m. today, and if you were to drive down to 680 Westfall Road after service, you could vote if you're registered, and I would recommend that you do that Um, for many, many, many reasons, only one of which is because of the fact that anti-Semitism is continuing to stick its foot in the door of American politics.
2: And as Christians, we cannot be um, silent or passive about rejecting that. Okay, that's uh, an additional sermon. Uh, uh, I'm grateful for your willingness to listen to it.
0: For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.